not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. And welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Adam Fout. He comes to us from Texas, and Adam is a writer who writes both fiction and nonfiction, as well as blogging about his life in recovery. Adam, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you, and we just want to get to know you and hear your story. So I will turn the mic over to you and have you tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Awesome. Um, So let's see. I was born in San Diego, um, mostly a normal life, and... You know, we moved around a lot, and I realized at a young age that I, well, looking back, I realized that I probably was suffering from depression, OCD, anxiety. I was binge eating. I was doing all kinds of stuff that, looking back, I see are signs of an addiction to come. Um, And I, I really believe I'm not one of those people who slowly became a drug addict, who slowly started drinking. I, as, as soon as I tried alcohol and drugs, I was like, this is it. This is the thing for me. Nothing else matters. And I started drinking alcoholically and using like a drug addict from the very beginning. Um, so I know that, you know, looking back, there are these mental health issues that I had, and I'm sure they contributed in some way. And I'm sure there was probably a level of self-medicating there, but there was, it was mostly addiction. Um, I, you know, so I've been sober for nine years, but I loved getting high. I loved getting drunk. Um, I started when I was 17 and it was just, you know, there was a girl, I wanted to impress her. I was curious and I smoked some weed and the first time nothing happened. And the second time, everything happened, and it was uh, it was quite something. Um, I, it was like a, I've heard people say this in meetings before, but it was a spiritual experience. It absolutely was. Um, I'd never experienced anything like it, and I chased that ever since. So my use at a young age was already causing me problems. By the time I was eighteen, I was getting um, you know in trouble with the law. Um, I was getting these, you know, small issues, small consequences. I was, you know, and my grades were dropping, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I went to college. I was in um, Kansas, and I went to the University of Kansas. And that began um, the majority of my drinking and using career where things got really bad. Um, so from age 18 uh, until the age of 24, I was selling drugs. I started with um, pot, as probably most of us do. But the problem with pot is that it stinks, right? And it's easy. It takes up all this room. Um, And so, 
you know, it seemed to me I didn't see anything wrong with this at all because, of course, in my head, drugs should be legalized. And I still basically believe that. Um, but, you know, I didn't care at the time if this was causing harm. And it, it, things just escalated. And they really escalated. Um, I found myself at the age of, oh, I think it was 20. Um, I started using Oxy, Oxycontin. That changed everything once again. And I often say, like, when I talk about my writing, um, you know, that when it comes to science fiction, Philip K. Dick was the first true eye opener for me. And then when I read Gene Wolfe, everything changed. So Oxycontin was my Gene Wolfe. And it became, it was something else, man. It, it just blew away everything else because I don't like things that make me out of my head um, or feel weird or think differently. Um, I am not the kind of guy that you want to do shrooms with. Absolutely not. It never goes well. Um, but when it, opiates were my thing and it, es, it just escalated and my whole story up until the age of 26 is just escalation, escalation. So I found myself, um, beginning to sell Oxycontin, of course, because it's very expensive. And this was back when it was still, I mean, this is in like the early two thousands, I'm 35 now. So this is, you know, 2003, 2004, Post 9-11, um, you know, the world was changing and I was basically numb to it or not not paying attention. Um, and I'll, I'll throw this in here because I do want to talk about a lot of recovery stuff. But I, th I think there was, you know, these issues that I was having with God that were really washed away by drugs and alcohol. So when I was young, I constantly thought about this and I went to religious schools and I would argue with people about a higher power. Um, I would argue with them about religion, and I would read the stuff. I would read it so that I could argue with them. Um, and I thought this, oh, I'm so smart, right? I, I'm so smart when it comes to religion. And I suppose in a way I was, but, you know, there's this part deep down inside of me that wanted some of this to be true, that wanted the world and existence to not be not necessarily meaningless, but to have no root, I guess. And so by the age of like 14, I was severely depressed. And I found myself trying to prove that there was some sort of God. And I would sit in my room. This is the one thing I really remember clearly. I would sit in my room and I would take a pencil and I was by myself and I would say, okay, God, there's no one else here. Uh, nothing, no one will ever know what happens in this room. I'm going to drop this pencil, just make it hover in the air for like a second so that I can know you're real. And that's all I ask. And I dropped that pencil, you know, dozens of times. And of course, nothing happened. Uh, and then I start using drugs at 17. And basically, the God problem disappears. I don't care one way or the other. And I'm probably just atheist if you ask me, but I don't really think about it. So fast forward to 20. And I'm still there's still no higher power in my life. Um, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm starting to sell Oxycontin. It's still the brand name stuff, everyone is snorting it, everyone's shooting it. You know, I never really got into shooting because I found I like snorting a lot. And so that's all I did. And I started to branch out into a lot of other drugs. And so for me, hard drugs, I experimented with them when I was 17 and 18, but I really got into them in my in my 20s. And so it just began this, this long drunkalogue that I don't need to tell you, um, where things just got progressively worse. I'm getting more 
consequences. I'm failing all my classes. I'm getting into dealing with higher level and higher level dealers. I'm transporting drugs in this kind of small way. And then eventually what happens is I have the bright idea to move in with this guy who sells hallucinogens and I sell all these hard drugs. And just to be clear, this was not in any way at a high level. I was like, the littlest guy that, you know, the average person would be like, I want some Coke for the weekend. I'm going to go talk to Adam. There was no volume because it all went up my nose. I am not a functional drug addict and alcoholic. I am not. I fail at everything. I lose job. I fail at school. I ended up dropping out after seven years at KU with an English major that I couldn't finish because I was high all the time and skipping class, stuff like that. And I find myself moving in with this guy. We move in together, and it doesn't work out very well, as one might imagine. We end up getting raided um, by the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, who uh, I did not know until that day. And this was in, like, 2009, I think, that they existed. It was a surprise to me, not a pleasant surprise. I always say it was like getting robbed. They took my money, they took my guns, they took my drugs, and then they left. They didn't arrest me, which was really bizarre, but I think it was basically because they found so much stuff in our rooms. They were like, we have to work on this for a while and figure out all this stuff you guys have. So at that point, I became really suicidal because I basically was like, I'm going to prison. There's no life out here for me. I failed in college. I'm lying to my parents about still being in college. Like Things are bad. I have no job. I've wrecked my car. I've gotten several DUIs. Things are not going well. After the raid, I, I make a suicide attempt, sort of. I mean, I guess it was. I went and bought a lot of drugs. I bought a gun, and I was going to take them all and shoot myself. But my girlfriend at the time, thankfully, knew what I was up to. And so she basically came into my room and wouldn't leave for two or three days until all the drugs were gone. And then I was too scared to do it. So... That was the first time. And then finally, in a Xanax haze, I call my parents and kind of, and tell them that there was a raid. And they're like, all right, you're done. You're moving to Texas. I moved to Texas. I go back to see this girlfriend. And, and you know, the depression is at, at this new level. And we get in an argument over money that I had stolen. And, of course, I was very hurt that she would accuse me of stealing this money. And we get in this argument, and I take a bunch of pills, and I realize at this moment I want to die. And so here comes another God moment. I am sitting there with these pills in my stomach, and I'm like, okay, let's go die. So I walk out of the apartment. I storm out in a rage, and it's the middle of winter. There's snow everywhere. I'm in all this you know, coat and jacket and all that, and I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go listen to music and die. And I pull out my headphones, and they die right as I'm trying to put them on. I pull out my phone, and it dies. So I wander into this um, labor-ready place, for, and I'm just totally crazy at this time. Next thing I know, I'm in the back of a um, of an ambulance. My leg feels like it's broken. They've done something with Narcan to my leg that has hurt seriously bad. I've never felt pain like that before go to psych ward, and that's when I start to go to meetings. I'm in Texas for now permanently. I'm not seeing the girlfriend ever again, and I'm still using. I'm still smoking weed because that's all I can find. 
I can't quit. I, I find that I can't quit weed. And I start to go to these meetings and I start hearing some things that resonate, but I'm not there yet because I still have an issue with step two. I'm like, okay, I believe there's a higher power, but because of these experiences that I've had, but I am, you know, I have a real problem with religion still, and I couldn't bridge that gap. So my big book is like filled with arguments that I've written, especially in We Agnostics, a chapter I still basically detest, except for like one page. It wasn't working for me, and I didn't really, I kind of wanted to quit smoking weed, but I don't know that I really did. And I'm working with a sponsor, I'm wanting to stop, and I'm finding that I cannot. And this is where I feel, I start to feel truly powerless, because it's like, I can't stop smoking weed? What is going on? What is wrong with me? And I get to this point where I'm like praying on my knees, God, take this away. I'm about to use, I know it's going to be against my will and I do not want to do it. And it's going to happen anyway. And I'm like in tears praying, God, please take this away. And I believe, I just don't know what I'm praying to. And like a light switch is flicked. The desire to use goes away, but I didn't really want to change how I was living. I wanted to work the program my way. And we all know how that works poorly. I just, I end up relapsing and causing harm and then feeling guilt about it because now I'm sober. So I actually feel guilt. I feel things. This is weird, right? Because it was the first time I'd ever even used that word relapse or knew what it was. And it was true what they said in the rooms that this will ruin your using and drinking forever. And I get, I get tired, man. I get really tired and I have some serious events that happen with my brother. He gets an infection in his heart. I'm the one who's watching him. He's in high school. I'm the only one there when it happens. My parents come into town. My brother comes into town. I've got, you know, I've got guns. Um, I'm acting crazy. I'm like aiming guns at people on the highway. My bro with my brother in the car He's like, you know, what are you doing? He tells my parents what's going on. They see what's going on. And it's like, okay, it's rehab time. Last time I did outpatient, this time I was inpatient. And I'm very grateful and just lucky that I didn't kill myself, kill someone else. It was, it was a really bad time in my life. And it was very much a rock bottom. And when I finally got off Sabox, and when I'm terrified because I'm like, I am going to do it again. I'm going to go get high. It will be against my will. There's nothing I can do about it. And once I leave this place, so I get a sponsor and I start working these steps like my life depends on it because it very much did. And I'm through the steps in 45 days. My first step is very clear to me at that point. It's essentially this question. My sponsor says, are you powerless or not? And I'm like, yeah, dude. I am powerless. Step two, I said, I've, I have made my peace with this. Um, I've seen things that I know are God working in my life or whatever it is. I really, I use that word um, mostly because it was like, it's the only word that I could think of that higher power was a mouthful. I didn't like saying that. And HP sounded stupid. So I was like, if I say God, people know what I'm talking about. And that's kind of it. But I basically believed at that point two things. This power is real, right? It exists. And for reasons unknown, it wants to help me. And that's all I can say based on my experience. And that's essentially still the idea I have of my higher power today. The closest I've ever seen to something I actually believe in is Taoism. 
Um, but at that time I, I was not, I was not thinking about any sort of religion or spirituality or anything. I said, just go, go, go. I am terrified. I must do this. I must get sober and I must stay that way because I know that I'm convinced I'm going to die and I don't want to die if I go back out. Now, looking back, probably would not have died. I probably would have lived and lived and lived in some form of misery. I'm much more terrified of institutions and, and prisons and psych wards than I am of uh, death because those are living nightmares to me. So that, that was like, I'm going to survive this way too long. And so I am going through these steps. So step one, I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol. It makes my life unmanageable. Step two came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Step three made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. And step four made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So that's broken into three parts. Um, The first part is the resentment list where we're listing our resentments and then looking at our part in it. Step uh, the second List is a fear list, and that's pretty straightforward. I'm just writing down all my fears. And then the third list is a sex inventory where I'm just writing down, here is all, all the, it's more like a relationship inventory. Here are all the relationships I've had with, um, you know, these girls, and here is how I acted in them. It's, it's, not, it's not about the sex at all. It's about here are, you know, how was I selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate, who did I hurt, stuff like that. So. That's that's why this fourth step took so long is I'm realizing like I am very hateful. I hate, there are a lot of people I don't like and I have a resentment toward basically everyone that I've ever met. Everyone has wronged me in some way. I am a victim. There were a few instances where yeah, I was a victim, but the majority of it was there was some I played a part in it. Sometimes a lot of the time is like I caused it. Because I had this, my MO was like, I turn and burn. I, I show up to these groups. I start hanging out with people. I screw over or get angry at every single person in there. I just cause harm. Uh, and then I move to a new group. And so in my dorm, I'm causing harm. In high school, I'm causing all kinds of harm. To my parents, I'm causing harm. Other family members, I'm causing harm. When I see my aunt and uncle, I'm causing harm. With my cousins, I'm causing harm. My brothers. When I am, um, you know, when I'm at home, I'm causing harm with these other drug addicts, people in the program, just everywhere, my roommates, you name it. And every single one of them, I had this resentment toward. And I'll pause to say this. I do. I vehemently agree that there are many paths to sobriety. The 12 steps just happen to be mine. And. I think that for other people, if they can stay on Suboxone and that works for them, I think that's great. I couldn't do it, but if they can do it and stop hurting their families, stop hurting other people, stop shooting dope, I think that's great. If they can do it through smart recovery, if they can do it through celebrate recovery or or anything else, a lot of people are just, they just need to stop and detox and then they just stop doing it. And that's great too. For me, it was just the 12 steps. And for me, they've worked exceedingly well. That was nine years ago that I got sober in 2011, and I'm still sober, and I could not do that on my own. I could never stay sober more than eight hours on my own. The longest I would stay sober really was 12 hours when I was asleep. As soon as I woke up, off I went. And I could never stop. I just couldn't. I go through my fourth step, and then the fifth step is essentially confession. 
And I tell my sponsor, we go through the list and he sees this giant list and he's like, we'll just go through the, the top hits, man. Show me the worst one. And it takes like four hours and we go through this, most of it. And afterwards I, I, I go outside and I do this hour of prayer meditation or review. And, and again, I'm not, there's no religion involved in any of this for me. I don't even know what I'm praying to really, but I'm talking to it and I'm saying, whatever you need, make me do it. I don't care anymore. I go through this process where my sponsor took me through the steps fast. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, but I, I'm not really comprehending six and seven, which you know, is made a list of our shortcomings and then humbly asked our higher power to remove them. I'm clear that I'm a liar. I'm a thief. Um, I'm a womanizer. I do. I cause all this harm. That's all really clear to me, but it's the smaller character defects I'm not really seeing. I work through six and seven and it's not really, I'm not really doing anything. I'm just like, here are my character defects. Uh, Take them away, I guess. I don't know how that works. Um, And then I move on to eight and nine and eight is made a list of all the persons we had harmed. Nine is um, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Start making these amends. And I have, I have like, I end up having a couple hundred of them. It is a serious list because I, like I said, I went around causing a lot of harm. So I'm like tracking these people down one by one by one. I am in school at this time. I've gone back to school at UNT. So this, and I'm living in a sober house. So this sober house allows me to my parents to pay while, as long as I'm going to school, everyone else has a job. And this is kind of messing with me at, at this point. I can't seem to find work. And the reason is during that raid, there were all these pending felonies that still hadn't dropped because it took them so long to process everything. They issue a warrant. They say, come back to Kansas. Uh, Texas won't extradite you. Please return. And I'm like, I don't, not right now, man. I am focusing on just getting sober and getting through these steps. I'm calling people and just setting up like four or five a day sometimes. That's all I'm doing is driving around Dallas-Fort Worth apologizing to people and paying people back where I can. And it goes well. And then I start, I, I finally say, okay, I'll go back to Kansas and I'll, I will turn myself in and deal with that. And it all ended up going fine. I ended up getting probation. Could have gone a lot worse. I didn't get any felonies. But that was why for a year and a half, no one would hire me. And the reason they wouldn't hire me is that the felonies were pending. If I had felonies, they would have been fine. But because they were pending and it was possible I would go to jail or prison, they were like, we can't hire you. Sorry, buddy. Let Call us up when this is all completed, which means I stayed in school, which in retrospect, was a really good thing. I am um, make a bunch of amends up in Kansas. I mean, lots of them in Kansas. A lot of people don't want anything to do with me. A lot of people are saying, no, and I'm fine with that as long as I'm trying. The I the program tells me that's okay. So I try my best. Um, 99% of them go well. A uh, very small handful go poorly, but for the most part, they go good. People just wanted me to stop hurting them and to stop hurting others and to stay sober and to just quit with the BS. That's all they wanted. During those first nine months, it was it was constant, getting all the ones that I could get. Is there some people I just couldn't find? Um, and I did find them eventually, almost all of them. I finished these amends, and I'm still living in this sober house. 
early on in the amends, my sponsor says, well, in the book, it says that as soon as we start the process of amends, you immediately start 10, 11, and 12. So 10 is continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, this God I know nothing about. Uh, 12 is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. We begin to carry this message to other alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. And I really focused heavily on helping people and carrying the message. And I like being on stage. I wanted to be an actor at one point. I like public speaking. I It's fun to me. You get to talk in front of a bunch of people. Uh, you get to give them this message of hope. I get to tell them that this works, but I can do my own spin on it. And my spin is this kind of thing where I say, I do say, if you can stop on your own, do it. Because you get a lot of people in the program who are very, you do the program or you die, there's no other options. And I'm not like that. And maybe I was in the very beginning kind of gung-ho. And I needed to be, I think, to get re- to be really rigorous. But I quickly got away from that. Um, and I Because to me, stuff like harm reduction is so good. I, I don't see any problem with, why do we have to force people to go out and, and get these consequences and deal with the cops, it would be much better if it was treated as a health problem. Yeah, dealing with the cops helped me, but, but it doesn't help a lot of people. You know, there's there's no reason if someone can stop causing harm that we we should be cool that we shouldn't be cool with that. So I, I start sponsoring very early in my sobriety. I get my first sponsee. I'm probably like 60 days sober. I, and I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this, but I'm in school and I cannot find work to save my life. And I'm feeling progressively worse about it. And when people ask, what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm in school, but I'm like 27, 28. So I'm feeling worse and worse about this. Eventually I do get a job and I can say, looking back, that it's good that I stayed in school because school has led me to a great career. It made me a much better writer. I went to school for technical writing. Um, I learned the technical aspects of grammar, spelling, punctuation that have helped me to be a better writer today. I think follow this path that I wouldn't have planned for myself or guessed would work. Uh, I wanted to start working immediately to become like a manager at a subway or at a, or whatever. Um, you know, some, something, anything, an insurance agent, you name it, something I can do. I wanted to make money and just stop relying on my parents. And that did not happen. So it was just school, school, school. My parents, um, were very fine with that. So they didn't mind as long as I was sober. I end up coming off my meds for depression my and anxiety and stuff like that. And I was taking, I wasn't taking anything that was a narcotic. Uh, at, a year, at the first year sober, I decide I don't need these anymore. I'm still kind of gung-ho. I'm like, you know, it says in the book that if I um, heal spiritually, I'll heal mentally and physically. So I'll be good. And that was not true. And looking back again, I can see that I had pretty bad depression. Not as bad as it once was, but I couldn't see it. Because thankfully, I was leaning so heavily on the program. It wasn't doing what it used to do to me because I'm just constantly working with sponsees. I'm constantly taking them through the 12 steps. I'm constantly helping people. Um, I'm very busy. I'm working really hard. Eventually, I end up getting married. So I'm, you know, I'm planning this wedding and 
there's just a lot going on that I don't know. I guess I was hiding the mental health stuff I, or I was so covered up. I couldn't see it. After I get married, I finish my master's degree. I start working at my first big boy job. Um, you know, I'm doing well with money. I'm, I'm quickly not having to rely on my parents anymore. I'm working as a content writer and a copywriter. And it's just, you know, I'm making progressively more money at this little firm that I'm working for. And things are going good. On the outside, they look good. On the inside, I'm not noticing any of these mental health issues. And it's more than, than that, right? It's I'm still binge eating. Um, I'm still, there's depression for sure. Um, there's anxiety, which is getting, which is getting worse and worse. The more responsibilities I have, what a surprise. There's a lot of other mental health issues. OCD is getting bad. I'm just not, I'm just so busy. I'm not noticing it. I'm, I'm probably a workaholic. And that's the best thing I can think of to describe that experience is I, I'm just addicted to doing things. I'm always doing, doing, doing. Things. I can't just sit around. I can't be bored. But I'm staying sober. I'm staying sober through all of this. I'm, again, I'm still working with lots of sponsees. And I get to about, year six, year seven, somewhere in there, I start to really hate my job. And probably that the depression played a big role in that. Probably a lot of things played a big role in that. And it wasn't, it was just, I didn't like where I was working. I didn't like the things I had to do. I didn't like the type of work I was doing. And I, I hated everything and how, you know, that's how it was um, when I was using and so it's like I'm I'm in this almost dry drunk phase. I, I'm in what the the book the twelve and twelve calls two stepping. I'm clear on step one. I'm helping a lot of people, but I'm not really. Character defects are bad, and the worst one is this stubbornness I have about refusing to to get help for my mental health issues or even being willing to look at it because I'm just like, well, the program will fix me, even though that has, that's clearly not happened for a long time. So about a year ago, I finally am like, something is wrong with me and I've got to face it. So I go to a psychiatrist and I say, I'm really depressed. I don't know what's going on. I want to get back on antidepressants. I want anti-anxiety meds, not narcotic. I want to fix this stuff. And I'm really angry. I'm angry a lot at this time. I'm angry regularly. I'm not acting out, but I'm angry. And I just, I'm so irritable, you know, I'm thin skinned again. So anything that happens, it's just like, you know, my poor wife, I had to make a lot of amends to her because I would just flip out over stupid stuff that didn't matter, like dishes, you know, things that didn't matter at all. You know, I really wish I hadn't done that and I, she hadn't had to be the one who deals with it because it's always the ones closest to us that have to deal with that stuff. I work with this psychiatrist and quickly come out of the depression. I've always reacted quickly to antidepressants. You know, we find a good dose. We start adding in some anti-anxiety medication. We start looking at uh, mood stabilizers eventually. That's still relatively new for me. Um, but it helped immensely with the anger because I'm, I get through this thin skin part, but I'm still getting angry and it's just stupid. I'm just so sick of it. It's like, I finally gotten beaten down by my mental health issues the same way that drugs and alcohol beat me down. And I'm glad I looking back that it went that way. I don't think that the mental health stuff could have come first for me because I was just so out of control when I was drinking and using. I had to stay sober a long time to learn how to deal with that.
I'm dealing with these mental health issues. I'm taking the pills I'm supposed to take. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And then my boss calls me into a room and says, I got to let everyone go. We're having tax issues. There's, you know, this, and this is before coronavirus and we're having all these issues and blah, blah, blah. And I'm sorry, I have to let you go. And I'm just stunned. I was not expecting it even a little bit. My coworkers are, are similarly stunned, but it is what it is. And so I immediately, I freak out, but I know I'm going to be okay. And the reason I know I'm going to be okay is because throughout this entire time, and I had a sponsor, uh, a friend of my sponsors tell me one time, he said, do you really think God is going to take you this far just to drop you on your ass now? And I, I always had that in the back of my head that this stuff works if I do it. Um, if there's a path, I don't see it. I don't know it, but I, I, it's there. And I just have to do my best to not screw up, basically, and I'll, fall, I'll be following it. Things just continue to work out. I've had this major um, life event happen that a lot of people would drink or get high over, and reasonably so. Um, but I have, thankfully, I had gone like three months before, six months before, and gotten all the mental health issues kind of squared away for a little bit so that this thing doesn't hit me as hard as it once would, once would have. And that was a what a coincidence. If I hadn't have done that, I don't know what I would have done, honestly. Then I end up just freelancing full-time as a writer. And again, things start to fall into place. The freelance work keeps coming steadily. And all through all this time, I'm carrying the message to treatment centers. I'm going in there usually once a week uh, because it meant so much to me to go in there and help people and to see them get better, to see them recover um, was such a rewarding experience. And it helped me stay sober. But for the most part, I'm getting these really random people finding me. Like someone somehow found my personal website, which was like nobody was going to that website. That's for sure. There's like no reason to. I had nothing on there really, just my portfolio. Somehow they find it and they're like, hey, we have hundreds of dollars of work a week for you. Would you like to take it on? And today I'm, I'm you know, I'm still a freelancer. I still carry the message once a week. I still go to a meeting once a week. I have a bunch of work. I have so much work that I'm able to give some work to other people in the program who I know. Somewhere around 2016, I started writing seriously, um, which is to say I started writing fiction seriously around 2018-ish. No, it's more like 2019. So about the same time I'm losing my job and whatnot, I start writing nonfiction and the fiction is really not going very well. And I'm working hard on it, but it's just not going very well. I'm not getting publications. But the nonfiction, I don't know. I had someone read it, and they said, when you write about this stuff, um, you know, it really comes alive. And I guess that's maybe I just like myself so much that I can write it from my own perspective. I don't really know. But for some re reason, it was resonating. So I started to sell some of that in some magazine. And it's like, all this stuff is lining up with a uh, real passion. And I find myself, I'm like, I love the speaking, but I love the writing too. It's communicating that for whatever reason, that is the thing I love. That is uh, what feels like a gift to me. I'm at this point now where it really feels like everything is coming together and like I'm close to, um, to becoming a full-time writer and not having to do this freelance stuff or, 
to be able to do it on the side and not have it be my full-time job. You know, things, things are good. Things are the best they've probably been in my entire sobriety. I realized a couple months back that if I'm going to sell a drug memoir, which what a surprise, they're like a dime a dozen. There are lots of them. Most people don't care about some random drug addict. They want to hear, um, you know, the, the drug addiction story of really famous people. They don't care much about some random schmuck. Um, so I realized I need to do more than be a random schmuck. I need to have something going on. So I started a blog and, you know, that's going really well too. And I don't know, things are just really good. Um, and I can say looking back that all that work I put in the program and the discipline that I forced on myself, cause I'm not a disciplined person naturally, but I forced myself to do these things, even when I don't want to do them to work the program, have that be the, the bedrock upon which the rest of my life is built. Um, it has worked exceedingly well. So, you know, that's, that's where I'm at today. Ah, uh, that's awesome. It's, it makes me so happy to hear you say that you're, you know, what was your worst, uh, well, not your worst fear, but definitely, I'm sure what seemed like the worst thing that could happen, which is losing your job, <laughs> has created space for you to embrace your your dream that you probably wouldn't have thought was even possible. So yeah. that's amazing. Now, you're a young guy. You got sober young. And yeah. at 35, to have all this sobriety, mm -hmm. are you a bit of a unicorn in your sober circles? <laughs> or are you in a community that has a lot of other people that are, you know, your age? And, and um, or are you, a, yeah. do, you, do you find that you have a hard time relating to people being so young and having so much sobriety? No, I don't. Because I am in... Um, I am in a group that has a lot of people who are young and have a lot of sobriety and a fair number of my sponsees who've stayed sober are also young. Um, now I can say that the friends that I spend the most time with are within five to 10 years of me plus or minus. So I have friends who are, who have five, six years of sobriety who are, um, you know, in their late twenties and I have friends who are, you know, early thirties and I have friends who are in their mid to late forties who have the same, you know, two years, five years, whatever of sobriety. So that's a good question because I know a lot of people go into AA and they're like, ah, oh, everyone's an old fogey here. But, um, no, I, I am lucky to have a lot of people who are, who are in my, um, my, who are my peers, um, mm -hmm. I am not That's a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I feel like our addiction, when it wants to get a toehold, I feel like one of the first thing it does is tell us that we're different or we don't fit in yeah. or everyone else yeah. is older than us or everyone else is younger, right. has more time, less time, whatever. Um, it's just looking right. for an in. So I'm right. glad that you've got, and I'm, I'm really impressed too, that after nine years, you're still going to a meeting a week. And that, that says a lot, doesn't it? For the structure, how yeah. the, because it sounds to me like the structure was a really good fit for you as someone yeah, who absolutely. hit pretty low bottom and like yeah. didn't know how to pull yourself out of that. And that's the beauty right. of a program that can kind of give you a lot of tools at once versus trying to just hobble your way through. Right, uh, I'm, right. I'm also surprised, Adam, to hear you talk about your your affinity for the 12-step program, and yet you're very open to 
people doing whatever they need to do to get sober because sometimes um, people that really lean hard on a program need to feel it's the only way because they need to feel that they don't have options. So do you ever feel tempted to talk yourself into like, oh, well, maybe I could stop going to meetings and just meditate or, or do you just sort of know, no, this works for me and I'm not going to mess with it? Yeah, for me, it's, it's really clear that this is the only way that I'm going to do this. And I have no reservations about it. And part of that might be that I'm a really black and white thinker for the most part, uh, especially around stuff for myself. Uh, I try and I try to get better at that, but no, I, I don't think I could ever do any other method. And frankly, I don't know that it's that I don't know. It's just, I'm terrified to try. I see no reason to. I, I do not feel tempted to do it um, because I don't really see any benefit for me. Um, this just works well. I'm, I'm used to it. I like it. Um, you know, it's I don't see any reason to change what's working. I want to ask you a little bit about your process of making amends. Um, so I. I'm curious about that because I I don't come from a 12-step background and my only, you know, real understanding of amends comes from my name is Earl, (laughs) 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 which I'm not sure is exactly how it goes. So could you maybe give us a few examples of like what were some of your best and worst experiences in the process of making amends? Sure. Um, So I think the best experiences... um, that's hard to say because so many people were just really cool about it. And basically what I would do is I'd call someone up and say, I owe you an apology. And a lot of people would be like, I know. Uh, <laughs> and I'd say, I would say, you know, uh, I'd like to meet with you. And we'd sit down for coffee or something, always in a public place, just in case they were really mad. And, um, and I would say, you know, this is how I harmed you. I regret it. It was wrong of me to do that. How can I make it right? I would keep my mouth shut and listen to whatever they had to say. And then I would, I would ask them if I'd left anything out and I would do my best to do what they said. Most people said, just stay sober and stop hurting people. Some people were like, I would have to come to them with money in hand and pay them back. There were institutions where I had to do that. Um, in terms of the best ones, I mean, I guess making amends to my parents was really good. It was very, it was one of the few that was really emotional. Um, and I had caused them probably of everyone the most harm because, you know, I've known them my whole life. Even my brothers didn't catch the worst of it because they weren't dealing with me when I was this, you know, crazy nutcase. They only dealt with me in snippets. My parents were always there throughout of it, throughout it. Um, so those were really well and it went really well. And I got to hear some, some hard truths from my parents, like my dad said to me, and this sticks with me, and I don't ever want to be this guy again. Um, he said, when family members ask how you're doing, I'm embarrassed to talk about you because I don't know what to say. And, and I was like, you know, that hurt to hear, but it was so true. Um, that was the life I was living. I was not someone to brag about. I was the guy who's getting raided. Um, so, but that was good that I felt like that went well for me. Um, you know, my mom is very emotional too, because, you know, she was always scared I would die. Um, especially once she found out how bad it was and I, it was all embarrassing for her too. I mean, she's a high powered lawyer and she has this son who's committing crimes. That's not good. 
Um, and then the worst ones were just, they were just ones that really, I don't know. Some people were really mad. Um, so there was this girl, um, who I was in rehab with and, uh, I always like to defend myself, but I played a part and she was married and, uh, I was in a relationship and we ended, you know, ended up together in rehab, which is generally a bad idea. She got kicked out. So now everyone in rehab hates me. And then when I go to make amends to her years later, it took me a while to find her. I still had her email. She wrote a scathing letter back where she said, you know, you caused all these problems in my marriage. You ruined my life. Um, You know, I've never gotten sober after that, blah, blah, blah. I was doing so good until you came along. I'm so mad at you. You know, I was not expecting that. Um, And, you know, obviously we both played a role in that and, you know, obviously there were things I probably should have thought about before making that amend, but I talked to my sponsor about it and, you know, who would have guessed how these things would go. Um, but every one of them, the best and the worst, I always learned something from it. And it was like, it was like each one, I got a piece of myself back because I had just, I had just spread all over the world, all this harm. And it was really good to feel, to clean that up and, you know, I didn't care whether people were cool about it or not. I mean, it was great when they were, but I was like, this is something I must do if I want to stay sober. And, and it, afterwards it always felt good to have it done. I like how you frame that, that you got a piece of yourself back. That is a great way to think of it. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Do we need to think differently about addicts and addiction, especially with the opioid crisis uh the my hometown here in alberta canada is really suffering and really hurting and there's so much division and and um discord over what's the best way to handle it certainly compassion is not at the top of anyone's list but what's your take on that what do you think might make a difference what are we missing in trying to address this issue yeah um you know, this is something I, I don't know, I guess I'm a libertarian. Like I think we should have healthcare and I think guns should be legal too. And I think drugs should be legal. I think it's so stupid that they are illegal because I think it makes things worse. And the way it makes things worse is, you know, I've been the guy cutting your cocaine. I'm, I know what's going in there and it's not great. Um, we have a lot of people dying from the opioid crisis because they're getting, you know, the stuff that who knows what it, what's in it. They're getting pills that have fentanyl in it. They're getting heroin that is just fentanyl. They're getting all this stuff that's deadly. And I know that you can still overdose on pills, um, but I think the idea that we can have alcohol, which is literally one of the most dangerous drugs in the world that I can think of that's so bad for you in so many ways, causes all this organ damage, is, is so horrible when you get addicted to it. And I've seen it kill people, and it's just awful um it is that's legal uh and the rest of it isn't and i i don't think anyone's under the illusion that if we legalize all drugs and they're all regulated and at least we can say they're all pure and you're not getting god knows what that there's not going to be deaths there's not going to be people who take too much um but that's harm reduction harm reduction works um i am not you know, it says in the big book, we're not teetotalers, which it took me a while to figure out what the heck that was. But I am not <laughs> against, you know, I'm not against alcohol because even with all the harm alcohol causes, 
um, because it's legal, because it's regulated. No, we don't worry about people going blind unless they're making their own alcohol out in the country. And that's, they want to be stupid, let them be stupid. But, um, you know, so that's, that's one of my takes on it is I really believe if, if drugs were legalized and they were, they were being produced and they were, there were, of course we'd have laws around them, just like what's happening with marijuana. It's the same thing. A lot of it's getting, getting really, really powerful. I think, you know, maybe that should be regulated. I don't know. Um, but you know, if we imagine if we legalized heroin and no heroin addict ever had to wonder exactly how much fentanyl was in this dose, um, and then, you know, and then other harm reduction methods have been really successful. It's a public health issue. It really is. It is not, it, we should arrest people if they're stealing. We shouldn't arrest people because they have some heroin in their pocket and we shouldn't, we don't want dealers. That's one of the biggest problems is these dealers succeed because you can't go buy heroin in a store. And I like to use that example because it's the worst one, but it's also one of the ones that's causing the most harm. And how many people have to die until we're like, okay, this maybe we'll do something about this. I mean, harm reduction has been shown to work well. Suboxin works well at reducing harm, allowing, you know, having these, I forget what they call them, but places where you can go, they have nurses on site. You can shoot up okay. there if you want. They, they try to get you into rehab or get you help if you're interested. So you're going to a place that has resources whose goal is to let you do this safely and to try to get you to stop if you if you want to. I mean, how much and it's been who guess how many people die of an overdose in those places? Zero, because they're not hiding out in a building that's, you know, abandoned and shooting God knows what and hoping for the best. So and no one around to hit them with some Narcan. So that's I am passionate about this as you can tell. that's what I think the answer is. So supervised consumption and yeah, uh, exactly. and lots of it. I know my, my hometown here just closed our supervised consumption site oh, uh, because it was so controversial. And yeah. um, it's, it's a shame it's because it was saving lives, but it was also concentrating yeah. the problem. And, sure. and that could be because we needed 10 of them, not one. Yeah. Um, yeah and exactly. uh, it's a big problem. It's a hard, hard thing. Before I let you go, I want to bring it around because your story is of, you know, a low bottom heavy drug user. Uh, A lot of our listeners are high functioning wine, former wine moms (laughs) (laughs) who who might be listening and say, I'm not sure I have anything in common with this guy. But those of us that have been around recovery for a while know, yes, you do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what what do you say to someone who might be a newcomer or who listens to your story and says, I don't know, I'm not sure that I have anything in common with you? What do you say to that person? I would say the same thing that we say in, in the program. You hear a lot. Look for the similarities, but it's okay if you don't see them. It's okay if you're you know, you just had some trouble with wine and you drank too much and too often, and you just had a hard time putting it down. Um, look at your personal experience and be honest with yourself. That's what matters more than whether you have something in common with someone like me. Um, maybe there are commonalities, but there'll be plenty of people who just won't see those commonalities. And I don't think it really matters that much because I think there's this underlying assumption behind it that you must have a commonality with someone like this because if you're in the rooms, you must be an alcoholic. You must be bad. There's it's black and white, and and I don't think that's true. 
So I think that it, just look at yourself. What if you if you can't stop, man? Be honest about that. It doesn't matter if you're you know having a fifth every night, or you're having a glass of wine every night, or you snort a little coke on the weekends, or whatever it is. If you're having a problem, you're having a problem. So you know, be honest with yourself about that, and and don't minimize what's what your truth is. Powerful, powerful words. How can our listeners find you, read your blog, learn more about you? Yeah, Um, I'm on all the social medias. Um, Usually it's just my name, Adam Fout. Um, You know, Twitter's at Adam Fout2. Instagram is at Adam Fout. But you can find it all from my website, adamfout.com. If you Google Adam Fout, you will, it's very easy to find me. Even my Xbox profile is Adam Fout. So it's, it's, it's all me all the time. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, listeners, sure. thank you for listening. I hope you learned something today. And I hope that you are inspired by Adam's incredible story. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner. strong just cause you'll keep it on the side it just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride turn the light on turn the light on you can shine when you support i did that not proud but that was me and when i face it i take back a little dignity i'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power. Oh, head on. You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear. You don't need to whisper to confessions every year. Person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror. And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I'm old, different Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back A little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you said I'm When you say I'm old, different Not proud, but that was me I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free